3: This is a CBC podcast.
1: The following program contains mature subject matter. You're listening to Someone Knows Something from CBC Radio. In 1972, five year old Adrian McNaughton vanished while on a fishing trip in eastern Ontario. Documentarian David Ridgen goes back to the small town he grew up in searching for answers.
2: You know, it's, it's a strange thing to have your family story out there. But it dawned on me that if you talk to almost any family, you'd discover that they had extraordinary events. Everybody's story you could make into a movie.
3: In everything we do, we make stories because it helps the world to make sense. And piecing together the story of Adrian McNaughton's disappearance is no different.
4: Well, that's what I figured. They had a winter coat on. Because of the mosquitoes, And I figured the next day in the heat he would have taken it off.
0: But Murray, I don't remember that it was a winter
4: coat. Well it was a heavy coat. I don't coat. remember that it was, it was a, a winter coat. coat. You didn't wear it in the winter time.
0: I think someone has taken them nuts. And I don't know if I'm saying that that I hope that that's what has happened, or I really think that's what has happened.
3: We can trick ourselves into believing anything, filling gaps where there's nothing.
0: Well, a lot of people blamed Murray for it. Yeah, I remember one was uh, Murray had just got out of jail, and he'd murdered him.
5: Yeah, there was uh, all kinds of accusations made. There was really ridiculous things, like somebody found him nailed to the bottom of a boat. There was crap like that. Some girl accused me directly, said, oh, she knew that I did it. I won't be accused of doing something I didn't do.
0: The one theory that I think is most plausible to me is he was trotting along the roadway back to the camper or something and
4: another fishing party or something came around the corner in a car and ran over him.
3: Adrian's eldest brother, Lee. Well, they want resolution.
2: We don't do well with the unknown. And with that, we want resolution, we want certainty, we want clarity. But unfortunately, that... Is not this life we have. And so I think all those people who had rumors and theories, well, of course, that's what it is. It's a conclusion for them, it, it's an end. It, we don't have to live in this mystery of not knowing. Like I still, every once in a while, sometime during the summer, if I'm in, a, in the right place, I like to lie out in the lawn at night and look up into the stars and see this vast expanse of interstellar space. And there's this sense of, I'm just so little to this, but in a weird way, I'm comforted by this massive unknowing out there, you know? I I
3: weirdly am
2: comforted by it.
3: And in finding new information to try to fill the void of not knowing, we at Someone Knows Something shaped our own story out of the mystery of Adrian's disappearance. Uh,
2: I, I, as I think our very first conversation I had with you, I worried, what was your take going to be? What were you going to, you know, did you have conclusions that you were planning on? But I think you let the story tell itself in that way. I think the only disappointment I've had listening to it is not listening to it as much as, is it actually having an impact? Is it actually, uh, you know, the title is Someone Knows Something, but what if no one knows anything?
3: Throughout our episodes in this series, we've received dozens and dozens of messages from listeners who said they knew something. From taking part in the search for Adrian McNaughton or knowing someone who had to having their own theories as to what happened. We started with what was known in 1972. One man, Doug Irwin, remembered two sets of footprints being found that led searchers nowhere
5: looked like a little boy's running shoe and a man's moccasin because it was flat and you could just see that where the ball of the foot hit, the heel, the ball of the foot, and the toes. And I remember those tracks well.
3: Another person's account of the search comes from Adrian's cousin, Brad Lee, a tall, skinny 15-year-old at the time who was lowered into a swamp with ropes around his body in case he got stuck.
4: You know, it's like... Probably the closest thing to quicksand I'd ever been in, but that was still kinda not thick. You could move around but you it wouldn't hold your weight, you sunk right to the bottom. They tied like two ropes on me. I just just used that stick and kept they tell me poke here over here, poke over there, and I'll walk this way. There's anything in the one I searched, you know.
3: Poking with a stick to feel for a human body.
4: And I, I guess if you would have been in there, there would have been like an article of clothing or you would have saw something, you know. And I remember getting out of there and just going in the lake and getting all that stuff off me, you know.
3: And now, well over 40 years later, even the original searchers, such as former Ministry of Natural Resources employee Hugh Allure, feel they know something that might help.
4: It was well covered. Eh? Like, I, I know that every speck of the ground was saw by me, and I think he was taken. And my theory is that if he was taken by a bear, something would have been found, like his cap. He's supposed to have had a cap. I don't hear that in the, any of those episodes. But, but it doesn't matter. A kid that age you would have found his running shoes and all that stuff. So.
3: And as we've been continuing our investigation, we've also been tracking down any of the viable leads and tips we've received in the wake of those episodes. A woman in Nanaimo, BC, named Sylvia, wrote to say after the sketches were released that she had seen and spoken to an Adrian lookalike in a London drug store. In a later email, Sylvia said she didn't live in Nanaimo and hadn't been back to the drugstore. And what about the people of Clyde Forks, the minister on the list who was there in 1972? Gail Campbell, whose house for sale I walked into, or Buddy Close, the fellow that the man in the truck Doug Bucher, suggested I speak to? I'm in the Perth, Ontario parking lot of Tim Hortons, and I'm going to call some of these folks that used to live up in Clyde Forks, so the first person I'm going to call is Gail Campbell. Please
0: leave your message.
3: Hi, this message is for Gail Campbell. My name's David Ridgen, I work for CBC Television and Radio in Toronto. Nan Barker, the woman who was listed as the minister of Clyde Forks United Church in 1972, has passed away. But the minister who replaced her in 1973, Paul Curry, is still alive, and I managed to reach him on the phone. At the time, Curry was an itinerant minister serving several small community churches.
4: I was there from May till August, serving the the church there.
3: So, do you recall anything that could be helpful with regards to Adrian, five-year-old boy coming to Clyde Forks back in there, June 1972?
4: I don't remember children at all. What I do remember is few of the homes across from the church had dirt floors and no electricity, wonderful people, but no children. And it wasn't because it was totally summer school vacation, If I was there in May and June. Uh just no recollection of kids and either they were all hidden away or they just didn't exist.
3: Hidden away, that's interesting. that you'd observe Well, I, that,
4: but... I say that because when I went to visit in people's homes and on the farms in the area too, uh, they were just very dark places where nobody really seemed to go out much. You,
3: you think it's possible then that somebody could have raised a child there unknown
4: to you oh, or to yeah. others? Sorry? Definitely, yeah. definitely, because of the, just, things were hidden.
3: And Gail Campbell calls me back. Do you remember anybody in 72, any young boy or any new kid coming into the community? No.
6: No, there'd be nobody came in. <laughs> yeah. We didn't know, like we knew everybody lived there.
3: And, and, and do you think it would have been possible for anybody in Clyde Forks or the area, maybe Flower Station even, to keep a child without letting anybody else know?
5: Oh no. 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 Everybody would
3: <laughs> be suspicious and wonder. And finally, Buddy Close. Were there many kids up in Clyde Forks at your time? Uh, there, was like, there. there was quite a few. You, or, yeah. But they all belong to people. Like you knew. Yes, who, that's right. You knew that they had had the babies and things yes. like that. Yeah. Uh, there was all never all any up, kind of a suspicious, all... where did that kid come from suddenly? No,
0: from. not really.
3: Mm. Hmm. So here's a picture. Here's a picture of Adrian Aww. as a young boy. Yeah. I'll show it to you first, buddy. You want to take oh, yeah, that think, and have a look?
5: Okay. I never see them. I don't remember anything about that little boy.
6: He's a cute little boy. I don't know.
5: I could print out
3: this little picture of him as a, as a little boy and send okay. mail it to you. And any time you come across someone who's from the Forks, older, okay. show it to them. Do you yeah. remember this little boy? That would help. Okay. Ontario Vital Statistics confirms that there were not a lot of children living in Clyde Forks in the early 70s. For privacy reasons, they say they can't tell us the exact number born each year, between 1965 and 1975, because fewer than five babies were born overall. Since the number's so small, their thinking is that if they told us, we could guess the names of the people and therefore invade their privacy. Despite Minister Curry's recollections of dirt floors and secrecy, I'm pretty sure Adrian didn't end up there. John Gervais' revelation about seeing a black and white 56 Dodge parked at Holmes Lake close to the time Adrian disappeared brought back a few tips. We'd contacted Chrysler and asked for a list of similar cars in Canada and received back a number of between 14,000 and almost 28,000 such cars. We even checked the serial number of the car whose picture we used for our podcast since the black and white combination we learned from Chrysler was a custom job and there were likely not many like it then and certainly not now. But the serial number revealed nothing and the current owner of that car is not the owner who had it in 1972. We've been posting the car picture on various forums throughout the country and a listener had done the same on a local forum. That listener's information led us here. Your dad here? Oh, hi. What's going on? Are you Dwayne?
7: Possibly. <laughs> it's okay.
3: My name's David, I work for CBC Radio. Yes, sir. And I got a story to tell you. What's up? Um, here's my card first of all. So, I'm working on a case that involves an old 1956 Dodge car. And okay. I saw online, looking in this area, that on a board that you posted that your grandpa used to own one. Years ago. A black 56?
7: Uh, Possibly, yeah.
3: Now do you remember seeing it?
7: No. That was way before I was born. Okay.
3: Yeah. And you just knew of it. You just I knew. was talking
7: to my dad about
3: it. Is he still alive, your yeah. grandpa?
7: No, my grandfather's not.
3: Uh, do you know what the case I'm talking about? Do you no. know? Oh okay. So I'm I'm working on a radio podcast.
7: Oh not the McNaughton one. Really? Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah. So uh, one in I'm sorry to interrupt at supper in. time. I just came in from Toronto here, so no worries. Yeah. I walk so, into Dwayne's uh, semi detached house to see his kids eating supper. Dwayne himself looks like he's still in his work clothes. It's a busy time of night, which is why I chose this time. But still, he's really eager to help, and we've never met before. So what what happened? You know, I don't know if you listen to things. So what happened? My on... wife
7: was glued to your. Oh really? Yeah.
3: Oh okay, that's cool. Yeah, that's right. So, my thinking is, who owned the white, black, and white car? Because they may have seen someone else there, someone or, or something. seen something, or have some key to the case, you know? Like you just check everything, so.
7: I'm trying to think back in about, I'm a car guy, uh, my grandfather, I can pretty much tell you every car they've ever had. That's just my, my thing. Yeah, yeah. He bought his first new car in 69, so it would have been a Ford. So he wouldn't have had a 56 back in about '72.
3: Oh, okay. And then he got rid of it. Yeah, yeah. years and years before. Uh, okay, so the car he, the black and the black car Dodge that he had, he got rid of before '72. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Dwayne disappears downstairs with his kids still cheerily eating supper in front of me. He returns with a car book. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. Oh, you
7: got a car book. This is this is just one that I could find quick. So that was what 56. Yep. No, but that's okay.
3: Then Dwayne's on the phone to his dad, verifying what he's told Sorry, me about his grandpa's car, and finding out something else. Hey, question for you.
7: Grandpa's '56 Dodge, right? Black and white, straight black. Okay. Um, anybody else in town have anything like that—a black '56 Dodge that you would know of? So. He said he knew that there was another one in town, blue and white, but that's blue and white, eh? I wonder yeah. who owned that one. He's dead now, Leonard. Yeah, who was his son?
3: That's. Uh... Dwayne finishes up, giving me the blue and white Dodge owner's phone number. Oh no, I, that was you were awesome. And I'm off again, and we'll look into it down the road. Okay, take care, guys. Nice night. We expect to continue getting tips like this as time goes forward, and new waves of listeners discover this story. We'll look into anything we think is viable. Back to Lee McNaughton. So what did you think of the dive episode? Well,
2: it was a difficult thing, but these divers, it's the needle in a haystack sort of thing, a haystack that's underwater (laughs) with poor visibility, really cold, you know. So you're putting a lot in this basket, which may
3: come to fruition and show something or it may not. The process of finding information in an investigation can help you to focus the narrative of what might have happened. But sometimes the force of that trajectory can take on a life of its own. Hence, the dogs, the dive, the basket. And now, the next step.
1: Ontario Provincial Police, if you are calling from a rotary phone, Please remain on the line, and your call will be answered. Renfro P.P. Sanders speaking.
3: Oh, hi. Uh, can I speak to uh, Commander Collins Slight, please?
5: Inspector Slight speaking.
3: Ah, Inspector Slight. It's David Ridgen calling from uh, Toronto CBC Radio. I've been working on the Adrian McNaughton case with CBC here. Oh, yes, okay.
5: Here. Actually, I just downloaded your podcast on the weekend. I haven't listened to them yet, but I've downloaded them. and I think the, a couple of the, the crime unit members have been listening or have listened to some of it anyway.
3: Okay. Well, that's great. And is, is it possible um, that after you listen to the episodes uh, that we could have a conversation about it on the record? And I'd be interested to hear the OPP's opinion, or at least your opinion, on what you think of what we found so far.
5: I'd have to check and see you get authorization from, because it's not my case if, uh, if I have the approval, I don't have a problem speaking with you, that's for sure, yeah.
3: If the Ontario Provincial Police, or OPP as they are known, are listening to the series, they'll know what we found. Adrian's case is allegedly the only unsolved cold case in Renfrew County, and our evidence is solid. But will they help?
1: <laughs> That's just
3: in the backyard. I'll have to go get him. Oh, okay, great. Before I talk about the police with the family gathered once again before me, I reveal a new idea brought to us by one of our listeners. Anonymous, voluntary DNA matching. Last time I was here, you told me that the police took your DNA, right?
0: Yep. Well, it came from when they were uh, doing the full uh, age-enhanced drawing, wasn't it?
3: So they did the other sketch, the Renfrew Detachment, did that sketch that we redid in 2009, and then they got your DNA in Murray's, and they how did they do it? Mouth. The cheek swab?
4: I think so. I Don't remember getting the finger cut off or anything.
3: <laughs> so somebody uh, sent a tip in to us. Not a tip, an idea, and we thought it was a good one. And it has to do with DNA. Uh, so there is a company in the States called 23 and Me, and what 23 and Me does is they take in DNA, and then they put that in their database. So what happens then is if somebody out there thinks they're somehow been missing or abducted or you know something in a similar situation as Adrian, they'll go and say, here's my DNA. And so then they match any DNA that comes, they try to match it. So it's an opportunity to just store your DNA there. And if someday somebody walks in and says, I've got DNA and it might match. So it's something, it's it's a positive step towards the direction of perhaps Adrian's still out there. So if you guys are interested in that... I think
1: it's a great idea, to be honest. Any chance of finding out?
3: What do you think, Murray? Oh yeah. It just increases the possibilities again. The onus is on the other party, the potentially living Adrian, to come forward and say to 23andMe, I don't know who I am, you know? Just his gut feeling that there's something different. And then I ask for the McNaughton's opinion on the podcast experience they've had so far. What's your sort of summative ideas that you've had through the process here? And oh,
4: I'd say you're doing a wonderful job. That's my opinion. And keep up the good work.
3: <laughs> Chantal, who's done the most in field work with me, seems hesitant to speak, and I notice that she's tearing up a bit.
0: I've been kind of thinking about this coming because as last week's episode said that Tuesday was going to be the finale of this season. And probably since the beginning, I've been thinking, I can't wait for this to be over. (laughs) But now when it's actually happening, I do have some mixed emotions. It's not, I'm not upset that the podcast is ending. But I was thinking, so then what happens, is all the investigating going to stop? Is, is, the, is the momentum now going to stop? Is it going to be over again? I think they've said it all. I think they've said it all, David. Really. I've had dreams and things from it all, you know.
6: And uh, not always good, but... No, I think
0: they've pretty well said it all, and I think you've done a good job, David. And I am quite sure it's not for anything for show. (laughs) You know, yeah.
3: It's a good time to introduce the idea of going to the police. So the next thing is, I have made a formal request to the OPP in Renfrew to discuss the case and talk about what we've come up with, uh, say the black and white car, the dogs, what's happened up there, say the new sketches. We want to talk to the OPP in Renfrew and say, now what? what, what do you want to do with this? What do you think of what we've come up with? And hope that they can carry the ball, you know, like I think uh, Colin Slight is the inspector's name, and he had to get permission to give me an interview. So any minute now, actually, I'm expecting an email from the OPP saying, we're gonna do this discussion with you or we're not.
0: Wouldn't you think that we should have some say?
3: Well, I'm willing to go with you. Hmm? That would be cool. i go. You could all come. Okay. Do you want to just come with me to Renfrew? And... Oh, I think I should. It would any help at all. Okay. Uh, is it okay if I take Murray in my car? All right. Well, we'll, uh, we'll see you later, Barb and Curtis. Okay, we'll see you later. Oh, yeah. So, where is the one I'm going to? Is it just on right, right Main Street?
0: Yeah. Do you know, do you know where the town hall is? Yeah. That's the same spot.
3: Okay. Okay, so I'll see you at the courthouse, Renfrew. Yeah.
4: Okay. Hall Street.
3: Okay, let's go. Are
0: you going to call him?
3: Yeah, I'll give him a call. We sit at a sun-slivered picnic table about 30 feet from the entrance to what looks like a large 70s-era brown brick building. A fading yellow OPP sign watches over us. You guys hear that?
1: Ontario Provincial Police, if you are calling from a rotary phone, please remain on
0: the line and your call will be answered. One moment please. Ren for Sanders speaking.
3: Oh, hi. Can I speak to Inspector Slight, please?
0: He's in a meeting at the moment. Could I take a message or have him
6: return your call?
3: Yeah, uh, just tell him David Ridgen from CBC called and uh, we're outside uh, here. Uh, so if you, if We're just outside the police station if he wants to give me a call.
6: And you're outside the Raglan Street detachment?
3: Yep, I'm sitting right outside here with um, the family of Adrian McNaughton and that's the case I wanted to talk to him about.
6: Okay, alright, okay. I'll let him know. Great, thanks. Thank
4: you, bye-bye. Bye. We'll down we might be here for a while.
3: I suspect this lad will come out rather than call me, but you never know. Hello. Uh,
5: hello David. Yeah. Inspector Slate speaking, how are you today?
3: Hey Inspector Slate, how are you?
5: I'm fine. Uh, I'm just going to give you a heads up there that I, I'm not going to be in a position to, uh, to speak to the, uh, the podcast issues. Um, simply because, even though know, I'm detached Detachment Commander for the area, it's, uh, this case is being managed by uh, major case management uh, by CIB. Okay. Uh, out of okay.
3: Inspector Slight is saying uh, that the case is being held by the Criminal Investigation uh, Branch of the OPP, CIB, headquartered in Orillia, Ontario almost 300 kilometers away. Uh, no, Inspector Slight had told me that he was going to speak to the current investigator on the McNaughton case. Okay, so the, per- the detective that you were saying you were going to speak to today didn't come?
5: Uh, no, I did speak to him, and uh, he's just not available uh, to uh, speak to you today. But uh, I'm, you know, from my perspective, I'm not in a position to, to add anything to it because it's, it's not my file.
3: Okay, so it's CIB's file? I just I'm here with the, uh, Mr. McNaughton and uh, Chantel. I'm just trying to relay it to them so they understand. They uh, we
5: well it, because it, uh, because it's uh, a major case file. It's uh, it's uh, managed by CIB and uh, they're the ones that uh, have the skill set and the resources to put through the investigation. And uh, so that's why they have the carriage of it.
3: I see. So when can we expect some kind of response? Do you think, Mr. Uh, Slight?
5: Um I have no plan to give you a response you know um, it, it's not my intent to do that the file is is open and uh, uh you know they'll uh, follow up the uh, leads they're brought to their attention and uh, that's you know that's the best that I can offer to
3: you okay so bringing leads to attention I have to send the podcast to CI to Aurelia then is that what you suggest
5: well it, it it's uh, Detective Inspector Rob Hagerman has carriage of the case.
3: Okay, so if I discuss or send to Rob Hag- Rob. Hagerman at opp.ca, the podcast, then that might get things going, you think?
5: Uh, well, that would put you in touch with him. Okay. He'd be the one that would be able to talk to you because I, I don't have the information that, as the case manager, it's their file to uh, address. In our organization, the uh, detachment does not uh, do any media relations with uh, the with respect to cib cases they they manage their own media release.
3: but d- sorry didn't you tell me that you would be able to talk to me if you got permission didn't that, isn't that yeah, what i
5: don't have, i don't have that permission
3: i, I see i see okay all right uh, thanks for calling um, okay. and we'll uh, we'll get, we'll certainly be back in touch
4: yeah thanks okay, a lot
3: okay well
4: wasted effort it's
3: typical of the uh, conundrum of dealing with bureaucratic police, and nobody wants to commit to anything until the the boss says it's okay. And eh, to some extent, it's understandable, but...
4: Discouraging is one word.
0: (laughs) Well, my thoughts are too, what's the big deal? It's a 43-year-old case, but we're trying. Let's keep trying. We're not here to uh, criticize anybody or how things were done or... We're not here to make anyone look bad
3: either, but I mean... Okay, well I guess we just have to hope that uh, the officer he named, when he listens to the podcast, he uh, sees his way fit to respond to the family. We'll get an answer, we'll get an answer eventually, we will. Okay, see ya Chantel. There's significant evidence here, and the police should pursue it. And there's also something significant on the dive front to add to everything else.
6: So the results of the dive were no surprise. We were prepared at that point to to just let it go, and uh, actually the divers contacted us. They weren't prepared to let it go.
3: A week after the dive we conducted for human remains at Holmes Lake, the dive where we found only a sock that almost for sure did not belong to Adrian McNaughton, Kim Cooper went back to the datum point with fellow handler Pauline and their dogs Breeze, Grief, and Quinn. I was going to ask him and the divers to consider another run at it, but before I could ask, the divers asked him to go back.
6: So they asked um, if we could go check it one more time, and if the dogs again showed an interest in that area, then they would make plans to return and and dive, perhaps in a different manner. So we went. I went back up to the lake and and run three of the dogs, the three dogs from the Ottawa team. Uh, And sure enough, we got body language changes, we got interest on the shore, and uh, we pretty much feel that the the wind and the direction of travel of the odour all are coming back to the same part of the lake that we dove the first time. So we had uh, Grief, Quinn, and Breeze, all three ran, and again, all, all the same spots. All three dogs, all the same spots. So if we take our wind direction and we draw lines back out, that's where we did the dive uh, two weeks ago.
3: By Kim's account, the wind was coming from a different direction than in December, but all three dogs, one at a time, alerted very distinctly once again to a scent of human decomposition, in an area that only slightly widens the original dive site. As a result, Mike Grebler and the others are planning a second dive, and it's with this in mind that I approached this finale of sorts to the first season of Someone Knows Something. If there are more discoveries, we'll be creating additional episodes. I join Mike Grebler and Kim Cooper in believing that there are likely human remains in Holmes Lake. It's just a matter of finding and then identifying them. And while police involvement is important going forward, we have a responsibility, the general we, all of us, to not only try to help find the truth in these cases, and push for those solutions, if someone knows something. But also, in the process, to try to solve ourselves.
2: I haven't liked this process. It's not easy, it's not comfortable, but I'm glad you've done it. Honestly, I hope that something will come of it. But if nothing comes of it, hopefully a parent will hold their child closer, care for each other more, and all of us realize that each of our lives are quite extraordinary. Some tragic, some beyond belief, but it is is that life that we live.
1: You've been listening to the Season 1 final episode of Someone Knows Something. Visit cbc.ca slash sks to see an interactive piece about what we learned this season from David Bridgen. We're also proud to announce that we'll be back with a new season and a new case in the coming months. Subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app to make sure you don't miss it. We want to thank you, the listener, who found us, spread the word, and joined us in this journey. We'd also like to thank the entire team that helped make the series happen. Someone Knows Something is hosted, written, and produced by David Ridgen. The show is also produced by Ashley Walters and Sandra Bartlett, and executive producer, Arif Nurani. The director of CBC Radio New Programs and Original Podcasts is Leslie Merklinger. The director of CBC Radio Digital is Jeff Ulster, and executive producer is Paul Gorbold. SKS Digital Producers are Craig Dessen and Chris Oak. Additional thanks to Philip Lung, Olsi Sorokina, Ben Shannon, Steph Kampf, AC Rowe, and the CBC Reference Librarians. Our theme song is by Bob Wiseman with vocals by Mary Margaret O'Hara and Jess Reimer. I'm Talia Schlanger. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for our next season in the coming months.